You may have noticed I had just had to get up during the interview. Um, the button on my shirt just popped open, so it's currently being held together with a safety pin, and I've had to um, tuck my shirt in, which is a great, great start. Um, I guess with all the prep I've done, I can now go and sue Zara, um, so I might be able to make a little bit of money from it. Um, but we are coming to God's Word tonight, um, which is something that is the most important thing that we can be doing. So let me pray um, for our time together, and then we'll look at 1 Corinthians 6. Heavenly Father, thank you that we have this opportunity uh, to meet um, as your people to um, hear what you have to say through your word, the Bible. Lord, would you help us um, with all of the different um, distractions that we so often face to focus now on your word? Um, Would you be working through your spirit to speak through me and to work in our hearts to uh, soften our hearts, which are so often hard to the gospel? And Lord, we pray that you would teach us more about yourself and how we should live as a church tonight um, through your word and point us um, to your son. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the man walks into CC um, on a Sunday morning. He shakes the hand of the person that's on the welcome team. He walks through um, the two doors there and goes and sits at his seat in the little hall. Um, he begins to, uh, to stand as the musicians begin, and they start to sing Amazing Grace. But then during the song, his heart sinks. He sees out of the corner of his eye, just a couple of rows back, there he is, the man who he's currently suing for doing a poor job on the conservatory that he was building for his house. And as he looks over at him and sees him singing with his family, he gets angrier and angrier. The rage starts to build up inside. And actually, he doesn't really even remember much more of the service. The sermon bypasses without a thought, communion served, and he goes home with rage in his heart at what this man has done to him. Now, I wonder if you think that that happens in churches today. Maybe you're a YPF or it's great to see you YPF. And as that passage was read, you think, how on earth does this stuff about lawsuits relate to me in any way, shape, or form? Well, God's word has something that is vitally important to teach us tonight because this is something that happens. There are lawsuits in churches. I know somebody, uh, a close friend, who is actually going through a lawsuit with another Christian at this moment in time. But the Bible also has something that is vitally important to teach us and to challenge us tonight as well, whether we're involved in a lawsuit now or whether we aren't. And last week we saw, uh, as Matt was preaching, we saw um, that Paul was writing to the Corinthian church and he was writing about church discipline. He was writing about how the church was to deal with sin in a specific area of sexual sin. And although this passage, when you first read it, doesn't seem to necessarily fit in with the flow of the letter, actually it does, because Paul is now going to go on and speak about how to deal with disagreements in the church. Because the church in Corinth had wandered away from the truth that they had known. They had wandered away from the gospel. And we're going to be looking at two points from the text um, this evening. Uh, We had four this morning, and all evangelical sermons have to have three, so we've been able to average it out. Um, But we've got two points from the text this morning. The first is deal with disputes in the church, not the world. And that will be in verses 1 to 8. And the second is remember your identity is in Christ, not the world. 
So first of all, deal with disputes in the church, not the world. And Paul is in the midst, really, of heavily challenging the church in Corinth at this point. And he pulls no punches, as we see in this chapter. The Corinthians had begun to take one another to court. They'd begun to actually take lawsuits out about one another. Look down with me at verse 1. If any of you has a dispute with another, do you dare take it before the ungodly for judgment instead of before the Lord's people? Paul's question here really is it's rhetorical. The point seems so obvious. Look at the wording. Dare they? It's, it's almost inconceivable to Paul as he writes this that any Christian in the church would rather take a disagreement they have to the courts than have it dealt with in the church. And it's helpful for a moment just for us to pause and understand the context that we're in. The, the major issue that the Corinthians have, which we see through the whole book of 1 Corinthians, is that they were conforming to the way of the world. Well, what was the way of the world at that time? Well, William Barclay really helpfully describes what was going on at the time. He says, the Greeks were naturally and characteristically uh, liturgious people. In a Greek city, every man was more or less a lawyer and spent a very great part of his time either deciding or listening to law cases. Not unnaturally, the Greeks have brought these tendencies into the Christian church. And Paul was shocked. Paul speaks very clearly about why he is so shocked in the verses that follow and why the church should be different to the cultures. The first reason is that Christians will judge the world and angels. Now, as Paul writes this, he writes it in the kind of way that it seems obvious. And whether you've been a Christian for a little time or whether you've been a Christian for a long time, you might have read that and been quite confused and thought, hang on, Paul, that doesn't seem very obvious. But actually, the Bible is very clear that as Christians, we will share in Christ's judgment. You can come up to me um, afterwards if you want to learn a little bit more about that and where it is in Scripture. But it's, it's part of the amazing privilege that the Christian has. It's part of us as a Christian being united to Christ through his death and through his resurrection. We get to share his throne. We get to share his crown. And we get to play a role in judging with him. Now, we can be so quick to naturally judge, uh, naturally uh, jump, sorry, to, to wondering what that would look like. What would it look like to judge Gabriel and the rest of the angels? What would it look like to judge the world? How will that actually work out? But I think we can sometimes lose focus of the main point here and what should amaze us. How incredible it is that we are given this responsibility. Whether you've been a Christian for many, many years, or whether you're still in secondary school or sixth form, if you are a Christian, then you will one day judge the world and judge angels with Jesus. And Paul is arguing that because the Christian has this immense responsibility and this privilege as well, it's really ridiculous that they would therefore not be capable of dealing with these petty disputes that are going on in the church. Imagine um, the top judge in the country is about to go through um, a massive case, an absolutely groundbreaking case. All the press are talking about it. Everyone's waiting to see what the judgment will be. And the judge comes through from their chambers. And just before they begin the case, 
he turns to the person that he's judging and starts asking him for advice on a dispute that the judges had about someone that sold him a dodgy car. It, it would make no sense. This judge is in authority. This judge is about to judge this person, and yet he's going to them for advice. Such, such important people and such people that are dealing with important judgments should be able to deal with tiny disagreements themselves, surely. And yet the Corinthians who were destined to judge alongside Jesus are unable to deal with these small little matters that are ha- happening in their church. Well, next, Paul points to the fact that there are actually those that are capable in the church of dealing with these disputes anyway. If you look down at verses 4 and 5, and as you look down at those, actually we can remember the context that we're in, that we've already seen in Corinthians. The Corinthian church thought that they were wise. They boasted about how, how much wisdom that they had. <laughs> Paul sends them, can you not even find one person in your congregation that can deal with these disagreements? <laughs> Hang on, you said, you said that you were so wise. How comes you're having to go out into the world to find judgments? They prove their boasts are empty because actually they couldn't use any of their wisdom to sort out petty arguments. And this is a reminder of everything that we've seen so far in this series from 1 Corinthians. Christians are meant to reject the wisdom of the world. I should put that in in inverted commas again because actually we know as Christians that what we should be doing is we should be living from God's wisdom. And the Christian, the church, has all the resources that we have to actually live in harmony with one another. So that means that when we're living in the church, we should be seeking restoration. We should be seeking relationships that are restored. And we also should be seeking the glory of God. But someone who isn't living under God's authority, somebody that wouldn't call themselves a Christian, they'll have no inclination to do that. They'll have no inclination to try and bring God glory through their judgment. The person that rings you every single week asking if you've been involved in a road traffic accident that hasn't been your fault isn't trying to point you to God. They're not trying to glorify God. Therefore, as Christians, we should be going to the resources we have in the church. Thirdly, their actions are a poor witness to the world. The church has got its dirty washing on show. People very quickly pick up on inconsistencies in the church. And if the church shows that we're divided in that we're arguing amongst one another, it does affect our evangelism. I, during the preparation um, of doing this, I heard a story about two Christian families that were locked in a lawsuit about a sofa. A sofa. They were taking one another to court because of a sofa. And not only that, but it had been made public to the whole town in which they lived. What does that say to the world? What does that say about how important it is that we see restoration? It shows that actually getting our own way is way more important than the gospel that we speak about so much. Now, the media are very, very quick to jump on any kind of inconsistency, whether it is um, a famous person that suddenly gets something wrong, but particularly in this context, when the church make any bad decision. And realistically, as the church, we shouldn't be giving off this false impression that we're perfect, 
I think if any non-Christian spends a couple of minutes with any of us, they probably will figure that out pretty quickly. But this isn't about, and Paul isn't saying that we should hide in the church and become kind of inverted among ourselves. And this actually leads me to a really quick side point. Because if a crime has taken place, then we are to deal with what's happened. God has put authorities in place to actually deal with these issues. And I won't go into all the different definitions of crime and what you should and shouldn't go um, into in terms of going to human rulers. But actually, as we've already seen in that point, the church has resources for people to go and speak to about these issues, about these questions that they may have. But there have been countless stories in the news that we will have seen about the church hiding, particularly hiding abuse, hiding people and protecting people that are in the church from justice. That is wrong. We as, as Christians, we are to seek justice. We are to seek the protection of people. We aren't to just cave in on ourselves and hide from the world. But what Paul is speaking about specifically in this context is these disagreements and these dis- kind of disputes that can be dealt with in the church. These petty arguments that the Corinthians were having with one another. And in this area, Paul says that defeat has already occurred. You can, you can almost hear the exasperation in his voice. The church has lost sight of the gospel because they were adamant that they had to protect their rights. They could never be at a loss. And if we're honest, when we read these verses, particularly verse 7, I don't think any of us are queuing up to be wronged or to be cheated. The temptation for us to think, hang on, God, you don't know what it's like. You don't know what it feels like. This person wronged me. I only want what's rightfully mine. And that applies to all of us. Because legal disputes don't happen overnight. It begins with a small attitude that is fixed on being right and always getting what you're owed. And here's where this passage applies to all of us, whether we're in a lawsuit now or we're sitting here wondering if this applies to us. Because like the Corinthians, we can so easily become like the world. The world which says, my rights are the most important. If you wrong me, then you better watch out because I'm going to get my own back. For those that are younger amongst you, you will have people, your teachers and and the culture of the world today saying that actually you should be your own person. Don't listen to your parents. Don't listen to what your teachers are saying. You need to work out what is right for you, and you must make sure that you attain that. You know the feeling when you feel like you've been dealt with unfairly, or an argument begins, and we immediately seek to defend ourselves. Some of the time we're wrong, but we've already gone down that route, so we can't turn back. So we just continue and continue to fight for our rights. And so often that can lead to us gossiping, that can lead to us complaining. And in the church, the danger is that actually we can go and complain to non-Christians about that. At the school gates, we can complain about the other person at church that wronged us. Or at work, we can say, oh, you can't believe what this person that says they're a Christian did to me. We might not necessarily be taking people to court. We might not appear on Judge Judy or Judge Rinder or take somebody on Jeremy Kyle You can show how much daytime TV I watch. It's actually none, don't worry. But what we can do is we can show to the world 
that actually we care about their opinion more than the people in the church. We can harbor resentment. We can see winning an argument as the chief importance. We refuse to accept any feeling of being wronged. But God isn't asking us to do anything he's not prepared to do himself in being wrong and being cheated. The Lord Jesus was brought into a dispute. They held accusations at him. He he was innocent, and yet he was willing to be wronged and to be cheated. He's willing to take on the mockery of the cross, the torture. He went and hung naked in front of people. And he did that for us. There's never been such a radical act in the whole of human history of somebody giving up their rights than that. He, he lays down his life for us. And that's why, and we have to get this, that's why Paul can say, why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Without the cross, what Paul says has no standing. But with the cross, in light of the cross, it changes everything. Christian, if you've grasped what Jesus has gave up for you, then surely you'll be willing to face loss and to be restored with your fellow brother or sister and display the gospel to those people that don't yet know Jesus. Paul is challenging the church because they've become exactly like the world. And it's not in line with their calling, with their capabilities, or their commitment to displaying Christ to the world. And he goes on to further speak about why it's so important for the Corinthians to live this way. And that's my second point. Remember your identity is in Christ, not the world. Don't worry, it's not as long as the first. Paul goes on to remind the Corinthians of who they were and who they are now. And his aim in doing this is to further encourage them to live for Christ and not the world. We can see the list that begins um, at verse 9. Sexually immoral, adulterers, idolaters, men who have sex with men, thieves, the greedy, drunkards, slanderers, swindlers. None of these people will inherit the kingdom of God. Now, Paul isn't saying that if you've ever done any of these sins or if you ever have the temptation to do this, then you have no hope. But what he is saying that if that is your lifestyle, if you are unrepentant, if you are living like that, then you will not inherit the kingdom of God. And the, the real kind of, uh, I guess, the main thing that he wants the Corinthians to see comes from the wonderful news that we see in verse 11, those couple of words that change everything. And that is what some of you were. When looking at what they used to be, the church, us as Christians, we should be humbled instead of proud. When we see how utterly dependent we are on God to save us from our sin, how can we then go and judge another Christian? The best illustrations are often uh, borrowed, uh, and I'm actually going to borrow one from Jesus himself. I can't think of anyone better to borrow an illustration from. Because he speaks in Matthew 18 about how we're to deal with disputes in the church. And he talks about this parable of a servant who has a debt that they could never, ever pay back. No hope of ever being able to pay it back. And yet, the king has mercy on them. The king wipes out their debt at a cost, a personal cost to the king. 
And what does the servant do? Well, as soon as they leave the king's presence, they see somebody outside who owes them a tiny, menial bit of money. They grab them, they choke them, and they have them thrown in prison for what they owe. It makes no sense at all. We have had our debt paid by Christ. We've been adopted into his family. How then can we, who've been forgiven so much, be so self-centered and fight for our rights against our own family? Those who have been saved by Jesus are called to live out their identity. Listen to what we've inherited through Christ. You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified. Paul is driving home from what he's even started saying from the start of 1 Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 2. To the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people. They're called to be holy to be devoted to God and to be marked out from the world. Greed and personal gain have no place in the church because we are to live as a people who are seeking holiness. Jesus has saved us from our sin. His death has cleansed us from our sin, so we are to live out our calling to be holy. This is what's been done for us. The work's been completed. We don't need to seek our own justice or fight for our rights Because when it comes to disputes, we have a hope that is far greater than winning an argument or being proved to be in the right. So to end, what does this mean for us 2,000 years after Paul wrote to the church in Corinth? Well, first of all, I just want to acknowledge that there are going to be people here who have been seriously hurt by other people, who maybe even as I'm speaking now still feel the pain of what somebody else has done to them. And we'll find this subject really hard to hear. And what we don't want to do is we don't want to belittle that in any way. God himself is the one that sympathizes with us. He's not happy that any of that happens. But there are some ways that the Bible does call us to respond to this. I think if you're not a Christian here this morning, if you, this evening, if you wouldn't call yourself a follower of Jesus, you will experience times where you've been wronged. Or maybe, we don't like to admit it, but maybe you've done the wronging. Now, the world says that we should live for our own personal gain. It will drill that into us. But that will always leave us feeling empty. Even when we win the argument, we we still feel some kind of emptiness that we've had to go through that argument itself. But instead of running relentlessly and restlessly for getting your own way, you can be set free. The Lord Jesus offers to pay your debt of sin so that you can live a life which doesn't seek after your own gain, but has a hope of a future which is far greater than anything this world can offer. And if you're a Christian, to end, there are three things, I think, that we can apply from the text tonight. First and foremost, I think this passage is very clear. If you're in a court case right now with another Christian, or if you're considering one, then you should stop. There are so many instances where this can happen, particularly Christians working with other Christians, Christians doing jobs for other Christians, Christians buying things from other Christians in marriages. So many of these things can lead to potential for lawsuits. But the Bible is very clear that we should be dealing with this inside the church. Secondly, if you're currently arguing with another Christian, then you should take steps to heal that relationship. You might even need to do that tonight. 
And we also have a ministry team and an eldership that we should be praying for, for wisdom, but that we can go to when we have disagreements. There are so many people that God has given us to be able to help us deal with this. But it's far more likely that most of us here tonight are not locked in a legal battle, but instead locked in a battle for our affections. The temptation that each of us fights every single day, whether we live for ourselves or whether we live for Christ. The battle begins with our own selfishness. Are you willing to face being wronged in the light of the gospel? To face that criticism from your spouse or that telling off that you don't deserve from your parents or to let that person off the hurt that you feel that they've caused you? We face these choices every single day. But Christ was willing to give his rights up for us so that we could be united to him. So it should be so much more important to us to follow his example than from being right. But we'll only do this when we see the beauty of the gospel. That although we were sinners, Christ died for us. You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we um, read this text, it can be easy for us to, um, to judge the church in Corinth, to, uh, to think it uh, doesn't apply to us, and yet in all of our hearts there is a sinful urge to have our own way, to win arguments, to make sure that we are the centre of our own universe. But Lord, we pray that the gospel would be the thing that is far greater than that. That each of us in this room would be captured by the fact that Jesus came to give his life, that we might be made right with you. The, the greatest example of anyone ever giving, that, giving their rights up is found on the cross. And when we see that and when we accept that, that changes everything. It means that we seek restoration with our fellow Christians and we seek to be an example to the world that we live in. Lord, would you help us to do that? Would you help us even tonight if we need to fix and seek to heal relationships that have been broken by arguments? Would we go and do that? Would you help us to live a life this week that doesn't seek to live for ourselves, but seeks to live for you, that seeks to point others to you? In Jesus' name, amen.